Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. So as we hopefully get into a phase where vaccinations increase, where rapid testing starts to increase, uh, there's going to be a need, I think, for governments to to reach out to the private sector, to businesses, to industry, uh, you know, for some support, some ideas, some outside the box thinking, and just more importantly, uh, the idea of a partnership, right, and kind of a national all hands on deck approach. That's what the Business Council of Canada is uh, looking for. Uh, they've sent a letter to the Prime Minister and the Premiers, um, you know, offering that, that companies, employers across the country can play a role in administering vaccines, providing locations for the administering of vaccines, also calling on the federal government and the provinces to provide more support to widespread and frequent rapid testing and screening. And even on the question, too, of uh, domestic vaccine development. So joining us to talk about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Goldie Hyder, who is president and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. Mr. Hyder, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. We appreciate this. So let's talk about the timing of the letter and why there's a real need right now to start building this, this relationship, laying the groundwork for this kind of all-hands-on-deck approach. Well, we're now 10 months into this thing, and there's still a, you know, a bit of a runway left here for the rest of uh, what probably will be most of this year when you look at things. And we felt it was an important opportunity to reiterate that what we've seen around the world is when governments and businesses work together in the international interests and the interests of their citizens, you problem solve better, you get things done, because, you know, two heads are better than one, if you will, and we just wanted to offer our support to help execute successfully a vaccine rollout and also uh, to really deploy rapid tests. We, we consider both of those are sort of uh, two ends of the same coin, if you will, or two sides of the same yeah. coin. We're going to need both. Uh, the variants have arrived in Canada, and we can't have people that are asymptomatic walking around not knowing that they might be spreading this. So the use of rapid tests is a critical component of containment, but then obviously getting the vaccines into the arms of Canadians is really key, and we feel that businesses have a lot of expertise. Our pharmacies are ready. We've got storage capacities. We can transport things. We have data management, and we can lead by example to make sure that people get the vaccines, and our, our offer to the government is let's work together and, and get this done. Yeah, and I think there's some obvious opportunities for that. You mentioned some of them, even the idea of, of um, you know, having sites where we can have, you know, large vaccination clinics once we, we get to those numbers. I think there, there's a role for, you know, businesses to play there, too. So, um, I mean, ha- has there been any of those, have we had any of those conversations? Have there been any of that outreach so far? Well, I think it's starting now. Um, you know, obviously, we businesses were very instrumental early in this in this crisis with the response to the call for PPE. So there's been a lot of that happening. Governments have been busy doing the things that governments have had to do in terms of procuring the vaccines and procuring the tests, and uh, obviously the the issue of uh, of uh, containment and the lockdowns and the schools and the healthcare. So governments have clearly been clearly been busy. 
what we're saying is this is a critical time in this crisis, and the worst thing you can do in a crisis is have just one plan. You've got to have some backup plans. And our view is, is that, um, you know, on the issue of, of manufacturing, even, you know, the government took uh, you know, quite, a, quite a bit of heat last week for their announcement on, on manufacturing plants that are going to be ready for 21 or 22. That's okay. I mean, we actually going to need them in 2021 and 2022. But what can we do before that? What can we do to work together to expedite this? There's a, a company called Providence that I know is really making a push yeah. for the ability to manufacture mRNA technology. I think the government of Manitoba announced today an agreement with them to allow them to get to clinical trial, to get their process in place for health approvals. You know, we've got to have different uh, balls in the air on this thing. We can't just be all down, doubling down on we're going to have vaccines and everybody's going to be okay. Maybe. Uh, it's insufficient to believe that, not only based on the slow rollout of the vaccines, which, again, I don't want, to me, this is not about faulting government. I think our government's actually done a pretty good job in procuring a lot of vaccines. What the challenge here is, is that everybody wants the same thing all around the world. And we're seeing a lot of nationalism. We don't have our manufacturing capacity, so let's build that. But in the interim, let's manage this crisis in such a way that people are starting to see hope. People are tired. <laughs> They're fatigued. Really? Old Canadian winter, especially where you are right now, yeah. they want hope. So let's give them hope. Let's show them that if we use rapid tests properly, the vaccine rollout gets done efficiently and effectively. People can start planning having their lives back as early as the summer, potentially. And that's what we're trying to do is give them hope. Yeah, let's talk about rapid tests for a sec, because, you know, I think we're in a good position, at least you know, we have these in, in big numbers. There still seems to be a bit of a reluctance to, to make mm-hmm. make use of these these tools. I, I think things are starting to move in, in that direction. Alberta's announced a plan to use more rapid tests. We've got some big companies that are part of this rapid testing consortium. What, what's your sense of where we're at and where we need to get to? Yeah, I think the tide is turning on rapid tests. I just saw a, a, a tweet from some Quebec journalist that was saying that the government of Quebec, who has been basically sitting on a million vaccine, on a million rapid tests, right, has decided, oh, we better use these. Well, yeah, you better use them. You've had yeah. half the deaths in this in this crisis here. So we can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. And I say this with the greatest of respect to our public health officials, but it's not fair to put the entire management of this crisis on their shoulders. They're public health officials. Political leaders ran for political office, and the burden of leadership is you have to make tough calls and tough decisions. You can't just say, I'm going to do what the other guy is telling me to do. And I think we've arrived at a moment where there's a realization that what, what, like, we need to change some things in the way in which we're managing this virus. Because if not, we are going to continue to play whack-a-mole. We're going to continue to be having uh, lockdowns and openings and lockdowns. There's going to be economic carnage for small businesses. Um, I can't tell you how much we feel for them because they're a huge part of our supply chain. So let's not repeat what has already not worked. Let's change something. And I think rapid tests are, and in B.C. and other provinces that have been reluctant, need to give a hard look at this to say, is this one more tool in the toolkit to help prevent the spread? And, and we think it is. We're a part of a consortium that you mentioned that's been doing pilot projects on this. This is like a pregnancy test. Make it easy, give it a clearer result, make it, make it you know, expeditious, so that if people are sick, they can put, pull themselves out of the uh, and say, I need to work from home for these reasons. And I'm sure employers can accommodate, and we've got you know, conversations going on about temporary sick pay and those kinds of things to address the issues that emerge. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's not meant to replace our, our existing testing system. As you say, no. it's meant as more of a protective kind of screening approach. It's another layer. And we're going to start doing this in long-term care. And I mean, you know, there's studies showing that that can save lives because it, it keeps sick people out, right? So if you can apply that in other workplaces, it, I mean, it, it just makes sense, doesn't it? 
That's, and look, I, I agree with everything you just said, and I think it's, it's as I said, this is the, the burden of political leadership is you have to make choices. And what we're saying is, with all due respect to our public health officials, some of whom are saying, no, no, we, we can't use these tests. My only question is, so the alternative is exactly what? Nothing? We just let people walk around not knowing whether they're spreading it or whether they have it? This is a, a, another tool in the toolkit that we should utilize responsibly. I think our government should be, our federal government should be procuring hundreds of millions of rapid tests. We only have about 38 million of them in the country. That would take you through a week if you just went through the population that would get tested. Uh, I think Ontario's announced and others are announcing. I think Quebec also said we're going to start looking at testing people in schools and places where potentially a spread could happen. And, and remember, these variants are a new dynamic here, right, Robin? This is a big problem. Yeah. These variants can... The UK variant went through the UK in six weeks. So there's no telling what can happen in a country like Canada where there's a lot of concentration in urban centers. It could spread. We need to make sure we can limit that spread, and rapid tests are the way to do it while we await our vaccines. The vaccines are not a cure. They're just one more tool in the toolkit that we're going to need. We're probably going to see this thing become an endemic, uh, become endemic in its, in, its, in its nature. And so we have to be prepared for that. And that means also producing manufacturing capabilities for not just Canadians, but perhaps to export those uh, vaccines at a later date, uh, just like we built so many ventilators when we, need, when we, when we, when we had a shortage. Well, much more at thebusinesscouncil.ca. We'll leave it there. Goldie Hyder, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Appreciate your time. Stay safe. You as well. Uh, that is Goldie Hyder, President's uh, Chief Executive Officer, Business Council of Canada. So urging, you know, the federal government, the provinces to, to be more nimble, to be more creative in their approach, to recognize, you know, the, the potential threats we're facing still in the months ahead, but also recognizing that, look, if, if we're prepared to act, we've got different ways of dealing with it. We've got vaccines. Didn't have that a year ago. Right? We've got rapid tests, millions of rapid tests. We didn't have that last year. So let's make use of all of this. this these can complement one another. And we can work with the business community. They've got a vested interest. And we spoke recently with the University of Toronto's Creative Destruction Lab, which is at the forefront of this rapid testing consortium. And you know why there's such an interest in, in building up this capacity. Because this can allow for, on, on a much greater scale, a safer return to the workplace, safer return to, to universities and colleges, maybe even potentially, you know, a safer return to all kinds of public events. So let's move on this. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here. 403-974-8255 is our number, 974-TALK. Uh, plenty more to get to here this afternoon. 3.30 uh, today, we will get an update from Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health. Uh, coming up in about an hour from now, we're going to chat with uh, music writer and historian Alan Cross. We'll talk about the latest nominations for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, who were announced today. Uh, got a few other things I want to get to in this hour. More time for your phone calls coming up. Uh, but off the top in this hour, I uh, want to look in on, on the work being done by the COVID-19 Immunity Task Force, which is, you know, certainly part of their work is to get an understanding of just how many Canadians have been exposed to COVID-19. To what extent does immunity already exist in the population? Now, as we hopefully get to the phase where vaccinations are going to ramp up, uh, that's going to be something else to, to keep a close eye on and then to, to measure how much of that immunity exists in society. 
so joining us to talk about uh, those aspects of the work they're doing and, and more as well on, on the point about uh, rapid testing. And we alluded to that earlier with the Alberta government's looking to do in long-term care and some of these pilot projects like the one involving uh, Suncor. Very pleased to welcome uh, to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Tim Evans, who is Executive Director of uh, Canada's COVID-19 Immunity Task Force. Dr. Evans, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, let's start with the, the latest numbers. It was a couple of weeks ago uh, you released your latest report uh, looking at how much uh, immunity exists in Canada, to what extent Canadians have um, been exposed to COVID-19. And it is interesting isn't it? because as, as much as we've been dealing with this pandemic, uh, the, the number overall is still quite low, isn't it? Uh, yes, it's very low. And uh, at, at one level, that suggests that uh, Canadians have done a tremendous job um, avoiding uh, exposure to the virus. Um, but at another level, it, uh, it makes it clear that uh, the vast majority of Canadians remain susceptible to infection. And so uh, that just emphasizes the need uh, for uh, uh, universal vaccine coverage as soon as possible. Yeah. Uh, so obviously we, we've seen the numbers increase since... Um since the summer, the last time we, we had some numbers on uh, zero prevalence, but still about 1.5% of healthy Canadians. That, that's still a pretty low number then. It's a very low number. And it, uh, because it's, uh, these data are drawn from blood donors, it may underestimate uh, the actual level uh, in a broader swath of the public um, uh, blood donors uh, perhaps are perhaps a little bit more cautious uh, and uh, tend to be uh, perhaps healthier than uh, the oh, the overall population. Uh, but even if you inflated these numbers, uh, even if you doubled them, three uh, percent of Canadians, it's still uh, a very tiny minority. Uh, and so uh, this is uh, this is just an indication that uh, we're not going to uh, move to herd immunity quickly uh, uh, based on the numbers of people that have been infected. Right. And I know early on there was some thinking maybe that in some harder hit areas you, you might start to see that. But I mean, as, as this research has shown us, we're, we're a long way from any sort of natural herd immunity. Then. Exactly. Um, there is the interesting question, though, in terms of that question of natural herd immunity, because certainly there's growing concern about the potential impact of, of variants and how or to what extent they, they might uh, elude or escape immunity. That's got implications for vaccinations, obviously. But what about on the question of reinfection? What, what do we know about that at this point? So uh, it's a great question, Ron, and um, uh, the data that we have, in fact, from a Canadian study, uh, which has been following people that were infected early on in the epidemic and following them over time, is that a very small number of people become reinfected. Uh, and so that's a very uh, encouraging sign. It suggests that the protection from infection uh, lasts uh, as long as eight months. Now that's, you say, only eight months. Well, um, uh, you can't go any further than that because people haven't uh, had infections or weren't infected uh, a year ago, uh, or perhaps some people now. But uh, So uh, th this is a study that's following people out over time. 
and uh, those that they've followed the longest, they're seeing very low rates of reinfection. Uh, and that suggests then that the protection afforded from infection is actually pretty robust, at least for the first uh, eight months. Well, that's encouraging. Um, you know, as we start now to get into the vaccination phase uh, of the pandemic response, and I suppose that's going to change the work to some extent of what the uh, immunity task force is involved in. So talk a bit about how your your focus and, and your efforts are going to start to evolve over the next few months here. Yeah, well, uh, thanks. That's a great question as well. And, and uh, I, about uh, three months ago, uh, we recognized, uh, as everyone else did, that vaccines were coming. And uh, as a result, uh, we've, uh, we've uh, uh, anticipated the, their arrival and are working now uh, on two fronts. Uh, one is to uh, support surveillance of vaccines as they're rolled out to understand their safety and effectiveness. And uh, when I say in fact effectiveness, it's really to look at um, uh, the same questions that we've been looking at arising from infection. Uh, after vaccination, uh, are people protected? And for how long are they protected? And so we're very interested to understand uh, what vaccine-acquired immunity looks like, uh, how long it lasts, and particularly in this context of uh, new variants, whether uh, vaccines are effect as effective against new variants uh, as they are against um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the more common form or previously more common form of the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. In, in terms of getting to some kind of herd immunity, I mean, do we have a, a good understanding of what kind of level we, we need to get to? Uh, there's lots of different models out there, um, uh, Ron, and uh, the, the thresholds uh, vary a little bit um, uh, between the different models. But uh, if I had to sort of generalize, uh, people, uh, the, the consensus is somewhere between uh, a minimum of 60 to 65 percent and as many as 80, 85 uh, uh, to 90 percent uh, uh, um, either infection or vaccine acquired immunity. So uh, it, it really is a very large segment of the population that are going to need to get vaccinated. Uh, and in the meantime, as we uh, navigate the coming months here and, and hopefully start to ramp up those numbers, there's obviously an urgent need to try to keep uh, infections down. We've got a lot of susceptible uh, population out there. What are your thoughts on this, specifically on the question of rapid testing as well and, and whether that can, can be a, a key component of our response going forward? So where, where do you come down on that? Yeah, I've been a broken record on this, Ron, since uh, last March. And uh, uh, it's uh, I think the, the faster and more comprehensive your testing is and your contact tracing, the more able you are to um, uh, make sure that you're on top of uh, the epidemic uh, rather than behind. So more, better, faster testing uh, is a huge public health dividend. And so uh, I continue to advocate uh, on this front, uh, that we should be doing more. Um, and that's going to be particularly important as 
as we start to see provinces relax some of the lockdown rules and start to open up schools and uh, places of work, uh, if that's accompanied by um, you know rapid testing, then that's going to make sure that uh, if there is infection in those settings, it's detected quickly. Uh, people can be contact traced and isolated, and we can avoid uh, further flare-ups. So uh, massively important at this point in time. Absolutely. All right, much more at uh, COVID19immunitytaskforce.ca. Uh, Dr. Evans, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me, Ron. All the best. All right. Take care. Uh, Tim Evans, Executive Director of the COVID-19 Immunity Task Force, a little bit more on the work they're doing and what they found so far. And sort of try to get as much as you can a good understanding of to what extent immunity exists. So one way to go about it is to uh, look at blood donors and to what extent are we finding antibodies in that blood. So overall, as he says, we, we may be missing some. But from what they've found, it's still very, very few, relatively speaking, anyway, Canadians who, who have that natural uh, immunity. So that's got implications, obviously. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Thursday afternoon. 403-974-TALK is our number, 974-8255. More time for your calls coming up in this hour. Plenty more still to get to here this afternoon. Off the top of this hour, some comments this week from the head of uh, Canada's spy agency, the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service, maybe pointing out the obvious, but I think it speaks to the seriousness of the challenge. A story here from Reuters. China poses a serious strategic threat to Canada, both through attempts to steal secrets and a campaign to intimidate the Chinese community. The remarks mark the second time in a few months that Ottawa has identified China as a problem actor. So the government of China is pursuing a strategy for geopolitical advantage on all fronts, economic, technological, political, military, and using all elements of state power to carry out activities that are a direct threat to our national security and sovereignty. Uh, So it speaks to this kind of uh, almost like information warfare, propaganda warfare uh, that China's engaged in and that, that, frankly, China's pretty good at. There's an interesting uh, new study uh, out uh, from the uh, Canadian Global Affairs Institute looking at how Canada can defend against this. And it's not just China. I mean, it's Russia as well that was uh, singled out by the director of CSIS. But, yeah, I think certainly maybe China's the biggest. And the study uh, arguing that we can learn a lot from Taiwan. I think on a lot of fronts that applies, uh, especially as it applies to the pandemic. But, yeah, I mean, Taiwan is a country that has to deal with this constantly and you know and, and they're you know a, a small country too up against a, a major power like uh, like china uh but this is something they are used to dealing with and, and maybe there's some cues that canada can take from taiwan's approach in dealing with all of this uh joining us uh, to talk more about it uh, is the uh, author of this study very pleased to welcome back to the program here this afternoon marcus kolga who is uh, director of uh, disinfowatch.org, a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. You can read this piece. It's up at cgai.ca. Marcus, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Obviously, Taiwan's, uh, you know, in a different kind of situation, at least, you know, its proximity to China, how China views Taiwan. But what are the similarities, as you see it, between, you know, the threat that we face from China and, and the threat that Taiwan faces? 
Look, you're absolutely right. I mean, Taiwan's in a completely different realm when it comes to uh, the threat of, of disinformation, uh, influence operations and such. It's sitting right beside China, and China is, quite frankly, intent on grabbing uh, Taiwan's sovereignty and ending it and uh, bringing it under its control. So they're facing a daily barrage of of this sort of stuff, whereas, um, you know, we're, we're just learning uh, about this now. It's, it's a, a newer phenomenon here in Canada. Um, you know, we've been facing the, the Russian kind of disinformation for about a decade. I mean, the government's been slow to acknowledge it and, and recognize it, um, and China more more recently. Um, but but you know the the point of my study was that you know we could really look at Taiwan and because they're they're able to do this very effectively, they're able to detect disinformation when it's coming in from various different channels. That you know this includes social media and uh, traditional state media. Um, and they've they've got a system in place where they work with civil society and um, and Taiwanese people in general who are able if they see this sort of stuff they're able to report it uh, to civil society it goes into a pool of organizations that looks at this stuff and they're they're able to put out a response they expose it which is very important the the government responds to it and uh, they're able to really uh, you know reduce the virality of this stuff when it comes to social media and, and address it and it's something that um, you know we can we can definitely learn from we're 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 not very good at it yet we're in the uh, you know very early phases of just really acknowledging the problem and I think as David Vigneault said uh, there was uh, towards the end of his speech uh, there's a bit of a call for help um, in that we're just not we're not doing enough to address it and it and it is a serious threat you know with Taiwan it's it's their sovereignty for for Canada it's, it's our democracy. Uh, and it's our society. And, and if we look down to the states, we can see what the results are like if we don't take care to uh, to protect it from these sorts of foreign malign uh, attacks. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about what it is then that we mean when we talk about information warfare, disinformation, you know, what yeah. it is and, and how and why China uses it to advance its interests. Well, look, when we, when we talk about information warfare, we really need to talk about Russia as well, because Russia... Yeah has really honed the craft of um, using false narratives, conspiracy theories to undermine uh, Western democracies. Again, if we look at what, what's been happening in the States over the past four years, that's a, that's a real, real result of it. Where China's mm. very good at it, they're not so good on the, the fake news and conspiracies, uh, but where they're, uh, they're very good, and, and I think Vigneault uh, pointed this out in his, his speech, is that they have influence operations. And what they do uh, is that they, uh, they intimidate their, their diaspora here in, in Canada. So they use various methods, you know, threats with visas, um, telephone calls, that sort of a thing, to, to keep the diaspora in, in line. And uh, this is, you know, disinformation poses one sort of threat, but that also poses a threat in that it threatens the uh, freedom of expression and, quite frankly, the safety of, of uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of, of Canadians. Um, and they do this very effectively. And we're, we're not quite there yet in, in responding to that threat. There, uh, you know, I think that uh, the Parliament, I think uh, various different law enforcement agencies are starting to take this a little bit more seriously and, and uh, opening up channels for which those activists in those communities can, can, uh, can call these threats into. Uh, but we're we're far from actually addressing it in a in a for wholesome manner at this point. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. It seems to me that you know recognizing it and being prepared to deal with it is the first step. Because you know, if if uh, you know members of the Chinese Canadian community feel as though they've got nowhere to turn, 
yeah. they're, they're going to be a lot less reluctant to to report these sorts of things, right? No, that's that's absolutely right. And so we need to you know open up and make sure that those that community and the activists within that community can feel safe, that they can they can feel free to express themselves. And if, when there is that threat, there is a channel that uh, that they can report to. That's uh, you know, that's, that's really essential for the proper functioning of our democracy at this point. Um, but it also means, you know, I think ramping up and, and reinforcing some of our, our other agencies like CSIS. Um, but right now, you know, Vigneault in his speech said that CSIS is operating under rules that really are, they go back to the mid-80s. So these are, it's un- operating under Cold War conditions. You know, things have changed. Um, uh, technology has changed. Um, and, and I think that we need to bring uh, CSIS into the modern age in that, it, you know, we should be giving it powers to be able to report what it's seeing to, uh, you know, media, a broader public. Right now, um, you know, any information that is, is, goes into CSIS, any sort of reporting, it's really, it's got its hands tied behind, it, behind its back because it can only report the government. Um, and they do a lot of great work. Um, that information should be getting out, uh, you know, exposing various information, uh, warfare, uh, influence operations, getting that sort of information, exposing it into the media. That's, uh, it's really critically important. So I think the Canadian government needs to take a, another look at the laws that govern CSIS and, and modernize them to, uh, to protect communities that are at risk of intimidation as well. But in terms of, you know, the speech itself and identifying the threat, you know, what what did you make of that? I mean, does it seem as though CSIS is where it should be on, on this question, that they understand the threat, even if they don't necessarily have all of the tools to respond to it, that at least they're acknowledging it? Yeah, um, I, I they, they were spot on. Uh, and I think that we can also look at other reports that have emerged over the past 12 months. There's the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. The, it's a new parliamentary committee, all party, that was set up a couple of years ago to um, to provide some oversight for our intelligence community. And they put out a report last year um, using, you know, largely, uh, you know, intelligence data gathered by CSIS. And it clearly outlined the threat that China and Russia pose. Um, and, and I think that the speech yesterday sort of reflected much of that. I and mean, he didn't, wasn't able to get into too many specifics. But, you know, the fact that uh, he's warning that China and Russia are, you know, are using cyber capabilities to attack, um, you know, not just government-related servers and such, but companies in general. Um, you know, it's, it's a broad swath of them that are at risk. And, and, you know, we know that it's happening because over the past, uh, six to 12 months, we've seen specific hacks. You know, uh, Russian intelligence agencies engaged in cyber hacking in July into our uh, medical research facilities that were looking into uh, COVID vaccines. Um, there's a so- massive solar winds hack that happened uh, just uh, in November uh, that affected you know, multiple uh, U.S. Uh, security and, and defense-related uh, systems uh, and lots of Canadian companies. And you know, China's hacked Moderna. There was the cold chain hack that happened in November as well, with with regards to the uh, COVID uh, cold chain uh, supply chain. And then, of course, uh, you know, they looked at disinformation, the fact that mm-hmm. um, you know, Russia and China are trying to undermine our democracy, and of course, the intimidation. So, I think he hit all the right points. The question now is, what is the government going to do about it? And I, and I don't think we've had a very clear answer yet, uh, despite knowing that these threats are around for the past several years.
It's interesting, too, and, and you have a quote uh, in your study. It was uh, from a couple of years ago, China, or rather Taiwan's foreign minister, who said, Taiwan is the first line of defense in an ideological battle that is taking place in Australia, Japan, the United States, Europe, and in like-minded societies all over the world. And I, that, I think that's absolutely true. problem is here in Canada especially that we, we don't like to acknowledge that. We almost don't like to acknowledge that. Um, you know, Taiwan exists or or that we're in the same struggle here or that, you know, we're we're allies with Taiwan. We're very delicate when it comes to to the topic of Taiwan, let alone working with Taiwan. Is is that something we need to, to get past? Well that's that's a great question. You know, I'm I'm just a big fan of Taiwan. I think they right. uh, you know the way that they're they're going about uh, their approach to defending their their country against uh, foreign disinformation, but their embrace of democracy and they're just the liberal way that they do things. I mean, it's a real model uh, for I think the rest of the world. Um, I mean, it's a young democracy as well. They just got their democracy in, in the 90s uh, where it was uh, an authoritarian regime before that. Um, you know, I think that we can start having that conversation, you know, about uh, giving, uh, acknowledging uh, Taiwan's sovereignty and, uh, you know, maybe giving them full, uh, making that, that relationship fully diplomatic uh, between the two and, uh, and moving towards that. It's, it may be something that the U.S. will be doing, and, and this is something else that we need to keep an eye on. We know that uh, Joe Biden has, has, is going to be, putting together a sort of a coalition of democracies. And I think Taiwan's going to be central to that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, standing up to China will include working with Taiwan um, because they're so important in the region. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I think part of our China policy strategy moving forward, if, if we have a China strategy, it doesn't seem like we do it right now, right. Um, it, it should include, a, you know, recognizing Taiwan's sovereignty for sure. Well, people can read this paper. It's up at cgai.ca, the website for the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Much more as well at disinfowatch.org. Marcus, thanks again for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Likewise. Take care. Uh, Marcus Kolga, Senior Fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute, Director of their disinfowatch.org project and author of this piece for the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour. Rob Reganridge with you here on this Wednesday afternoon. Again, our phone number 403-974-TALK, 974-8255. Uh, obviously, the last few weeks have been a lot of focus on the uh, issue of Keystone XL and the uh, decision by the new American president to revoke that presidential permit. Now, maybe there's still some hope for the project. You've got uh, an influential uh, Democratic senator from West Virginia, Senator Joe Manchin, who's asking President Biden to reconsider but with all of the focus on Keystone XL, maybe we're missing something bigger. In fact, our next guest says uh, this might be uh, more impactful than the Keystone XL decision. And it has to do with General Motors. Uh, General Motors, uh, of course, the uh, biggest uh, of the North American uh, automakers, is uh, making a big gamble on electric. They're going, maybe not quite all in. But they're going big on electric vehicles. A couple of weeks ago, GM announced uh, that they were going to make the majority of their vehicles by 2035 electric vehicles. They made the point pretty clearly in a Super Bowl commercial you might have seen over the weekend uh, featuring comedian Will Ferrell. So there's definitely a trend going in that direction. 
And how real it is, I guess, remains to be seen, but it's certainly something we can't afford to ignore, I don't think, because there's some big implications uh, for the oil and gas industry, and therefore some big implications for Alberta. Joining us uh, to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Warren Maybe, who is uh, Canada Research Chair, Director of Queen's University's Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy. Professor Maybe, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So in terms of, of scale and impact, and uh, you know, I saw the quote from you making the argument that maybe what GM is doing is, is even bigger in a way than the decision on, on Keystone XL. Explain what you mean by that. Well, Keystone XL is a, a huge blow, of course, you know, to lose a potential avenue to move product uh, from the oil sands, from the oil fields into the American market. Uh, and of course, that's where a lot of our attention has been. But, you know, GM is talking about fundamentally changing uh, the way that vehicles are powered. And, you know, you do that and you really reduce the demand for gasoline. And suddenly the oil sector is facing not just, you know, problems getting their product into a marketplace, but problems actually having a market at all. And so what's what's driving this? I mean, is it is it merely concern about climate change or are there other factors at play here? Well, I think that there's a few things. Obviously, climate change uh, has tied into a lot of thinking about, uh, you know, how should we move around and, and what should power our vehicles, our homes, our, our planes, all of the technologies that are out there. Um, there's also the fact that, you know, electric engines, when they work, work really well. And uh, the rail industry has known this for uh, decades. You know, most of the trains that you see are... Uh, diesel-electric trains where the energy is generated by a diesel engine, but the actual engines that move the wheels are electric because the electric engines are just that much more efficient at translating energy into motion. And we're seeing that in vehicles. You know, vehicles with electric engines are high performance. They they perform well. Uh, they do it with less energy. The problem has always been the batteries, but the batteries are getting better and better. And so suddenly there's real potential to move in this direction. And that fundamentally upsets the whole apple cart of, you know, how does the oil industry work and where does the bulk of a barrel of oil go? Yeah. But I mean, look, I mean, GMs, uh, you know, they're, they're a business, right? They're, they're in this to make money. And, you know, maybe this is good PR, but obviously they've got some, you know, some deeper interest and concerns in, in whatever direction they're going to go. So I don't think GM's just doing this for, for PR, right, or to make them look good, um, you know, to, to environmentalists. So what, what's motivating, uh, you know, a company like GM? Well, uh, again, I think that the technology's gotten to a point where uh, it's not just something they can do, but it's something they want to do. They want to make these electric cars because uh, an electric engine is a simpler engine to, to build, so that reduces some of their production costs. Uh, electric vehicles may be simpler to service because all of those moving parts that we see in an internal combustion engine, a lot of that just disappears. Obviously, you still have brakes and, and good things like that, but uh, you, you don't have the same level of complexity. And so by moving in this direction, not only are they giving their customers something that performs really well, uh, but they're potentially doing something that could be cheaper for them to make in the long term. And once they've hit that point, then uh, it makes perfect sense for them to push in this direction. 
Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, you know, it's all about what the technology can deliver. I mean, it's it's hard to create that demand if if you're not offering people vehicles that that are, you know, have the right price point, you know, can meet their needs. I mean, you know, here in Alberta this week, we've been at, uh, you know, minus 30 or, or colder. Um, so can electric vehicles hold up under that? So it's it's obviously about, I mean, you can make the supply, but there's got to be the demand, right? That's, uh, I think you're absolutely right. And there was reluctance, uh, particularly if you look back over the last decade, uh, in early adopters to take on electric vehicles unless they were absolutely sure that there were charging stations where they needed them to be, that the batteries weren't just going to peter out after, you know, a short distance, 50 kilometers, 100 kilometers. Uh, the consumer confidence is being built by uh, what they're seeing with the early adopters and, and what's happening with the vehicles that are coming out. Uh, we are seeing an expanded charging network right across the country, and we are seeing better and better technologies at managing those batteries. Because I agree with you, when it's minus 27 out, you know, batteries are one of the first things that are going to be sapped. And I bet there's a lot of people in Alberta who are, uh, you know, wishing that they put a new battery in before the cold snap hit. Yeah. Uh, but the technologies are improving, and people are getting more comfortable with what's coming out. And in terms of, I mean, there's still energy demands then. Um, you know, vehicles are electric. We still need the electricity to power them. So, I mean, have we figured that side of the equation out yet? Well, it's a really good point, you know, where the electricity is abundant and relatively cheap. Electric cars work well. Where electricity is expensive or where the electricity comes from a particularly uh, high-pollution source, you know, from coal or from uh, sources like that, it's not as big of a win. In fact, in some cases, you might actually have a worse footprint, environmental footprint, uh, by using the electric vehicle than you do by using uh, the internal combustion-powered engine. We are seeing a transformation in the electrical grid. You know, that is partly because the grid is old in a lot of places and we need to put new technologies into play, partly because some of the new renewable technologies are getting cheaper and cheaper, and so we're seeing more investment. But there's a lot of moving parts to this. And so when you look at GM talking about uh, a 2035 target, well, that means that in the next 14 years, we need to see some new investment in the electrical grid, and we need to be sure that we have enough power online to power all those vehicles. You know, and what, one example of where, you know, we're seeing some, I think, some common ground that's been found on, on alternatives is with hydrogen. The federal government's big on hydrogen. The Alberta government's big on hydrogen. You know, these aren't hydrogen ve uh, hydrogen vehicles necessarily that uh, the industry's talking about making, but... You know, can hydrogen be in the mix in terms of electricity through fuel cells or, you know, is, is yeah. that maybe a part of the solution? I think it will be part of the solution. And in fact, I think that hydrogen is essential because the one thing we know about renewable energy is that it comes and goes. You know, the sun rises and sets the uh, wind, uh, it comes up and goes down. Uh, we're not going to be able to rely on it to be on and off exactly when we want it to be. We need ways to store up energy and to deliver it effectively. Hydrogen is a clean way of doing that. And the fact that, you know, in Alberta, there's a lot of expertise around hydrogen and a lot of potential to build that infrastructure out means that there is a big opportunity in this new electrical future. All right. Well, some big things are happening. We'll have to keep a close eye on it, Professor. Maybe we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your insight and appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thank you for having me. 
All right. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Warren Maybe at uh, Queen's University's professor and uh, Canada Research Chair, uh, also a director of the uh, university's Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy. So he says, pay attention to this. This, this is big. You know, so for GM to come out a couple of weeks ago and say, yeah, th- this is the direction the company's going. By 2035, most of our vehicles are going to be electric. I mean, you can't ignore that, right? And obviously, their competitors are moving in that direction. I mean, Tesla's driven a lot of this. Obviously, you know, some of the big companies in Asia are big uh, in going in this direction. And now for GM, where you think about the history of GM, the legacy of GM, for them to come out and say, yeah, we're on board too. So we can say, oh, I don't believe it, or yeah, good luck with that. But I don't think you can just dismiss this. The uh, nominations, the 2021 nominations for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame are out today. And uh, we'll talk about who's on this list. But uh, I think a, a, a big story here, too, in terms of who's not on the list, and a lot of Canadians, a lot of Guess Who fans beyond Canada's borders, failed to get the Guess Who on this list. Joining us uh, for some more thoughts on all of this, Alan Cross, uh, broadcaster, music historian, writer, his website at journalofmusicalthings.com. Alan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, let's start with the Guess Who, because, uh, yeah, I, I think to a lot of fans, they, they belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This petition effort got a huge amount of response. I mean, are you surprised at all that they are once again overlooked here? Not at all. Uh, It's unfortunate. Remember that the people who run the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame have blinders on. They look at America, because that was the land of rock and roll. And if it's not there, well, uh, it's it's rarely in their sights. Now, they did get a couple, well, exactly two artists this year that were not American. Um. I think, though, the Guess Who thing came in a little bit late. We only had, uh, you know, maybe eight weeks to get this going, maybe six. Uh, hopefully, though, that we did get their attention, and maybe next year they'll end up on, on the nomination list. I mean, strictly speaking, though, you, you think, I mean, do they belong there, in your opinion? Oh, I think they do. I mean, yeah. they were certainly, uh, you know, one of the best-selling bands of the late 1960s and early 1970s. In fact, they outsold the Beatles in, in 1970. The problem is that they're Canadian. The problem is that they remained based out of Winnipeg, and that didn't put them in the spotlight for all the people, um, the 900 or so people that are, are on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nomination committee. And don't forget that they were around 50 years ago. So that's a long time. Uh, none of these people remember who the well, guess who is, which uh, you know is why we needed this petition and, and perhaps why... Um, it, it didn't make it happen this year. The the other thing too is that you got to have a champion. You got to have somebody on that committee that is willing to go to the wall and say, "I'm going to support this, and I'm going to fight for this, and I'm going to make sure you consider this." And it's just not there. Just not there. Yeah. So an interesting uh, list of of nominees this year, and you know, obviously being nominated doesn't doesn't mean you're going to get uh, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But what, what I find fascinating is you got, for example, Shaka Khan, seven Shaka nominations, Khan's been nominated seven times. Seven times. She was with Shaka Khan and, and, and Rufus. And now, you know, they are going to nominate her until she gets in. I don't know how. 
<laughs> she keeps getting on the ballot. But that goes to prove my my point about having a uh, somebody who's going to fight for you. So there's somebody yeah. in that on that committee, a number of people, I guess, on that committee who believe that she should be in the hall. So they're going to nominate her every year until she finally gets in. Same thing with uh, LL Cool J. He has been nominated six times. So he has his uh, his defenders, his his, his advocates. Uh, so here we go. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, as you say, getting nominated just means you've been nominated and the people who make the decision on who gets in, it's a different process. But, uh, you know, you, you see these these nominations, these names keep coming up. Let's look at who you think are, are some locks here uh, among those nominated. Who Who's likely to be the, the slam dunk first time nominee into the hall? Okay, let's go through it in alphabetical order. Okay, Mary J. Blige. Uh Again, I think that that is a, an example of somebody with an advocate or a number of advocates. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Mary J. Blige. She's a very talented person. Uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame material, uh, I would beg to differ. Uh, Kate Bush, yes, should be a lock. Um, very influential British singer from the late 1970s through the entire 80s into the, into the early 90s influenced tons of female singer-songwriters, including a bunch of Americans. Uh, Devo, interesting. Uh, experimental, new-wavy, synth-pop band. Uh, were very influential on a number of people. Uh, all the way up to Soundgarden, by the way. They were huge Devo fans. So I would give them serious consideration. Next, we have the Foo Fighters. That's a lock if there ever was one. Uh, then we have the Go-Go's. They have long been overlooked. I think they should have been in a long time ago. They were the first all-female band who wrote their own material that ended up with number one singles and albums. So, yes, they definitely should be there. Huge influence on, on uh, untold numbers of, of people, both female and male. Iron Maiden, uh, one of the two non-Americans on this list, uh, about time. I mean, if 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 uh, you know, '80s heavy metal, I mean, it's Iron Maiden, and, and they, they they continue yeah. to sell out people, uh, shows around the world. Absolutely, Jay Z. Uh, I guess, um, you know, I, I, again, you know, this is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Jay Z's not very rock and roll, but oh, okay, um, he, I can understand his his influence is important. So let's give it to him. We've talked about Shaka Khan. Uh, Carol King is on this list. She's already in there for songwriting, so now they're going to get her in there as a performer. I think that should be a lock as well. Uh, the second non-American is Fela Kuti uh, from Nigeria, the basically the inventor of Afrobeat. I'm surprised he made this list. It is very, very good that he did. But I'm surprised that uh, the committee um, actually knew who he was. Uh, again, important, not rock and roll, but very important to uh, all kinds of different types of music. LL Cool J, again, sixth nomination. Yeah. They're going to do what they can to run, ram them through. <laughs> New York Dolls, uh, I'm in favor of this. New York Dolls were an early 1970s band out of New York. They were the uh, proto. They were a proto-punk band. They were doing punk before punk was punk. Uh, they were in, into spandex and makeup before anybody else. Uh, they became an influence on tons of people, including a bunch of British punk rockers uh, and, and and others. So um, I would, t- you know, if, if you're looking for influential 
bands that created the foundations for music that came after, I would definitely put them on the list. Mm-hmm. Rage Against the Machine, a lock. It shouldn't even be a discussion. Todd Rundgren. Um, yeah, I think so, because not only has he been a, a longtime performer, he's been an experimenter with music and technology. He's also been a very successful producer. So let's give it to him. Uh, Tina Turner, she's already in there for her work with Ike. They want her in as a solo performer. Fine, I'll, uh, I'll yeah. go along with that. And then finally, we have Dionne Warwick. Again, a bit of a problem with this because Dionne Warwick is about as far away from rock and roll as you can possibly get. So why is she being considered for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? But again, that has to do with uh, the politics of, of how this works. She is related to Whitney Houston, who you remember got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year, which is just like, what? Um, but, you know, I think that's part of the same faction that wants that family to be recognized uh, going forward. Yeah, it's interesting. And I mean, we, we just had the 30th anniversary of Whitney's uh, national anthem uh, performance at the 91 Super Bowl. And just a reminder of just what an incredible singer she was. But this its this isn't the singing Hall of Fame. It's no, not the rapping she, Hall you know, of Fame. I mean, so it, 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 it's it, that, it, that, that whole debate, right? Yeah, and, and, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has kind of backed themselves into a corner. Um, so they'll, they'll nominate Dionne Warwick, but they won't nominate Judas Priest. They will nominate uh, Mary J. Blige, but why is Kraftwerk not in the Rock and Roll Hall mm-hmm. of Fame? I mean, these... These are, are, are things that, uh, you know, people will, will get upset about. It's part of the reason I don't give a whole lot of credence to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's about 900 people on the nomination committee, and it's very political. They're going to fight with each other, arm twist, and make sure that certain agendas are advanced. There is the fan voting thing, and you can go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame website and vote for any one of the people that we just talked about. The problem is is that no matter or whoever wins qualifies to receive just one vote against the right. 900. That's, that's how it works. So you could have a million fans vote for you to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and you finish number one on the fan voting, that counts as one vote out of 900. Well, so when do they make the decision? Um, later this year. I think it's uh, – they have to go through the whole, yeah. uh, you know – one of the things that they want to do is they want to create chatter. They want to create debate. They want to create something that will get people excited about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So this goes on for a number of months. I think, I want to say November. Oh, uh, I should look that up. Way. But uh, I, I want to say November and then, oh, no, it'll be earlier than that because I, they want to have the ceremony in November. So I would say June or July. June or July. We'll have it. Yeah, because I think they're giving the fans until the end of April to vote. And then there's still a process after that. So still a few months after that. So rockhall.com, if people want to uh, see more there. And, of course, uh, more at journalofmusicalthings.com. Alan, appreciate the insight as always. Thanks for making some time for us here today. You're very welcome. All right. Cheers. Take care. Alan Cross, uh, music writer, broadcaster, historian, his thoughts at uh, journalofmusicalthings.com on uh, this year's crop of nominations for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Again, an interesting mix. It's always funny to imagine like a concert festival when you see the list of nominees each year. So imagine you got a weekend planned, you're going to the big festival, and it's going to be Mary J. Blige and Foo Fighters and Iron Maiden and Chaka Khan and Jay-Z and Tina Turner and Todd Rundgren. Right? What a weird show that would be. So, yeah, I don't... You know, when, when rock and roll early on, rock and roll was just sort of pop music, right? 
but I think over the years, rock and roll has taken on a different context. So the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame isn't, strictly speaking, a rock hall of fame. It is, but it's also much more than that. So there is that confusion, but it does, I, I think, spill over into this debate about who gets included and who doesn't. I think Alan made some interesting points there. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.